Pia, thank you very much for joining me on the podcast today. Uh, I've been looking forward to talking to you for you know pretty much since since I met you last year uh, in in Milan. You and Nick uh, for my audience, people listening um, who don't know a lot about you. I know this is going to be a very broad thing to discuss, but uh, can you tell us a little bit about your background, but maybe maybe start off um, from your childhood, like what your first <laughs> interaction with, with scent that you recall um, is and how you found yourself living in the UK and doing what you're doing. Well, first of all, thank you so much for inviting me to come on here. Um, it's just been a pleasure to see um, how you've reacted to one of my perfumes in particular. Um, and so, of course, I'm delighted to be able to talk to you more directly. Um, for my childhood, wow, okay. Well, Finnish perfumers aren't very common. And that's probably partly because it's really difficult to smell anything when it's 20 below zero. Um, <laughs> your nose kind of needs humidity and when everything's frozen you're a bit uh stuffed but there's also a cultural leaning in Finland towards this sort of sauna clean you know you're supposed to be soap smell of soap and uh not wear much makeup and clearly me loving makeup and perfume I wasn't really a great fit um and so I actually really craved something more creative more colorful um, and, and less sort of samey. Um, Finland is lovely, lovely, lovely. I mean, I miss it all the time. I miss the forests, especially the lakes, um, some of the foods, all my friends, my dear friends who are there. But I'm not very suited to it as a person. I really just felt quite suffocated. The culture is very much you have to conform. And even yeah. people who think they're free-spirited in fact, are conforming within that allocated <laughs> uh, types of in which you can be free spirited in Finland. It, it's yeah. a very difficult thing to realize when you're there. But when you come out of there, you realize that actually um, you do have to conform. And I was never one to do that, really. Um, and so I came over for a gap year originally. And uh, 31 years later, that's uh, <laughs> one long gap year. Um, but I came over when I was 21 years old. And actually, it's very easy now to start constructing a path to perfumery from even my childhood. Um, it would be so tempting to create this attractive narrative that it was yeah. destined to be because I was actually surrounded by perfumes uh, all my life, my mother was very unusual uh, for a Finnish woman in that she loved perfume and she had multiple. She had a perfume wardrobe before that was a thing. And so she had Rive Gauche, she had Ygrig uh, by Yves Saint Laurent, she, she had uh, Chalimar. Um, she had just this magnificent collection. And of course, I associated those smells with her. I was surrounded by them. Um, and I developed an interest too and in mm -hmm. fact very early on I mean when I was under 10 years old she was buying me Christmas presents things like original Madame Rochard 
uh, <laughs> or farm, farm, you know, yeah, like yeah. sort of twelve-year-old wearing wow. rocking about wearing farm or something. So, so, it, so it's um, it was very unusual now that I think about it. And um, when I was still in school, um, we weren't very well off. Uh, my mum was a single mum, yeah, and we lived in sort of what's the equivalent of Finnish council housing. Obviously, compared to what British council housing is like, it was luxury. But uh, you know, in Finnish terms, we weren't particularly well off, and um, and so I started working really early. And actually, I got a job perhaps a bit sooner than it was technically legal, uh, but it was <laughs> it was the eighties, and my mum was working for the same department store, so she sort of sneakily got me a job ah. on the perfume counter. <laughs> Um, because she was the private secretary to, to the CEO of the, the company. So I sort of went in on work experience initially, and then I actually got a job. Um, and so I started selling perfume when I was only 14 years old. Um, and I got trained by all the brands. So Chanel, Kenzo, you know, all the all the brands sort of came over and did training. And regardless of the quality of that training, it nevertheless, you know, started to sort of spark an interest and obviously, as a teenage girl, you don't think that's going to be your career. Um, I was studying languages, but I got exposed to some really beautiful, refined and mirrored styles of perfumery really, really early. And very atypically, I would say, for a Finnish person, actually. And of course, the other really attractive backstory that I could very easily make sound <laughs> as though I've been handed some kind of destiny was that my first word was actually flower uh-huh. and that <laughs> was crawling on all fours in my grandmother's pansies. <laughs> so my grandma was a great gardener and we had a summer house by lake and she planted flowers, fruits, vegetables, berries, and again, you know, because we weren't particularly well off as a family, she was growing a lot of edible crops, but there were also loads of flowers that had absolutely no other purpose than to smell nice or be pretty. Yeah. And I always really loved my grandmother for that. She never went anywhere without her handbag, her perfume, her powder and her lipstick. And I think I sort of really kind of always admired that. Um, she was always so well put together. And... Um, I just loved crawling in her flower beds, much to her <laughs> annoyance, probably. Um, but yeah, so I was obviously very much sort of crawling towards the nice smells. Um, so yeah, it could be said that maybe, you know, those country house visits and uh, uh, the sort of exposure of perfumery early on, maybe those influenced me, but certainly subconsciously, because consciously I was going to be an author, I was going to be a writer of novels. That was my original real passion. I wanted to write um, fiction and I actually got stories published very early on. I I had a story published in a Finnish children's magazine when I was only nine years old Um, and I continued writing fiction and and, uh, publishing stories right up until I was 18 years old. Um, Everyone assumed I was going to be a writer. And I, well, um, it, it it's it's apparent to me that that um, that creative uh, thread where that storytelling thread would translate into something like creating perfumes as well. Or do you or do you not see that 
connection. No, so I totally much. see it. Uh, yeah. And actually, the the way in which I first sort of naively and then later much more purposefully learned to craft and structure a story, I totally saw the parallels when I started studying perfumery in that you have to think about your end aims you have to think about your plot you have to think about how it develops you have to think about what kind of structure are you building underneath it before you then embellish it um and so if i go ahead and craft a piece of fiction or indeed something that's more factual i will always build a sort of a blueprint underneath it um and then the story on top and then you go in and edit and edit and edit and edit Mm-hmm. And that's exactly how I create a perfume too. So it is, I actually do see it as another language. Perfumery to me has always been another language. And given I had a language school background, um, I was fluent in Russian by the time I was 19. Uh, we had all our topics were in both Finnish and Russian. Um, and um, at one point I was able to speak five languages, two of them completely fluently, mm-hmm. one pretty fluently, that was English. And then um, sort of others passably, but I've pretty much now ghettoized myself to only Finnish and English. <laughs> I've forgotten all my Russian, but um, I did totally see the parallels in yeah. in sort of uh, it's perfume is a form of communication. It's another way mm. of telling stories, and it's a way of telling stories direct to someone's emotions. So with, with the training, with the training that you did undertake for perfumery um well first first of all maybe um if you could tell tell me a little bit about what that entailed um what what were the main what would be the main takeaways you you would say to someone who's interested in learning perfumery because Well, look, uh, I mean, I say that in in this current environment where there is such a proliferation of self-taught perfumers, mm. I, you know, I I would imagine the internet, the online environment has a lot to do with that these yeah. days because it's just so much easier to find out about things like that. But is there anything you would advise someone who is interested in becoming a perfumer? So many things. I mean, one thing is that actually everyone who has sufficient interest and real obsession and passion about perfume and a perfectly normal sense of smell could become a perfumer. Mm -hmm. So that's the first thing I want to say is that the trade has, for various reasons, over its own existence, created this mythology of perfumers as born geniuses and people who are the chosen ones who could only ever have become perfumers, first of all, and have perhaps come from a family of long line of perfumers and that there's something in your genes that makes you a perfumer and that you have a particular trait that makes you this long lost genius or, or, or whatever. And that's all pretty much bullshit. Um, <laughs> all you need is this absolute obsession about learning. Yeah. You need 
a bizarre mixture, and this is with all art or, in fact, athletics or anything that you go ahead and do at the level you have to work if you do actually want to become a professional perfumer, this mixture of total unwavering belief and confidence and total humility. And it's a very strange double thing to have to have, but you have to have both. And then on top of that, you have to be able to pick yourself back up again after criticism and not take it as a bruise to your ego, but understand who is speaking. Are they trying to help you become technically more adept? What is their experience? Are their observations rooted in practices that you no longer wish to perpetuate? Are they trying to impose their style on you? Are they trying to perhaps do a power play if you're in some kind of environment where they're senior to you? Or are they genuinely an educator? And it's obviously very difficult to tell if you're yourself still learning, but criticism per se is not bad. And it's actually someone could really save you from yourself if you sort of really took on board what people were saying and sought feedback early on. And this goes for self-taught perfumers maybe more most of all is to find people with whom you can have a trusted safe session of of evaluation and conversation and feedback and get people from different backgrounds people who are naive um, in that they are not in the trade but would respond as a consumer would and are close enough friends with you that they will give you their honest feedback rather than say oh that's lovely um you know and that's it so to find find those sort of trusted people that would be the main number one advice is learn to to understand what it is what are the qualities that you really need and what is the level of feedback that's actually helping you progress and become the best possible version of the perfumer you could be um versus maybe starting a brand a bit too early um or or sort of thinking that there is some kind of x factor that is to do with your inherent being and your inherent talent that is just waiting to be discovered that is not true that's what the perfume industry has marketed itself as but actually really just comes down to having the sufficient drive passion interest and then ability to work really really hard at learning the the sort of the technical skills and then practicing and smelling and smelling and smelling um so it just then comes down to repetition and exposure to perfumery problems um and then anyone can actually learn it yeah yeah well and you and you mentioned the importance obviously of getting um feedback from people who you trust to give you honest opinion and yeah um uh, Obviously, uh, well, well, tell us a little bit about how you met Nick Gilbert and how um, <laughs> that partnership, that creative partnership came about, uh, you know, starting with with when you met um, and how allfiction.com came about. Um, <laughs> yeah. And then we can we can delve into some of the things um, that, that yeah. stemmed from there. Yeah, so um, Nick and I actually sort of share a spookily similar formative background in our route to our true passion of perfumery. Um, He also started working in fragrance retail in his teens. And so he was right there 
talking to people on the shop floor about their preferences and and he understood how consumers look for for fragrance and he was really good at it too um and through various adventures he he got um, a couple of really amazing jobs in the trade first through the retail route and then went into scent development and actually worked for Penhaligons and Lotte Saint Parfumeur. Yeah. Um, and he got to work directly um, with perfumers. He was also training staff. He was writing copy. He was doing new product development. And so he had all these kinds of wonderful um, tasks and part creative, part marketing, part training, part sales. So it was really uh, a lovely hybrid role that he had. And then meanwhile, I'd sort of kind of come up through different route um, to a sort of a parallel position where I had decided to go onto the lab side of new product development. Um, I also entered through retail and marketing, but then nagged my then first perfumery employer until they let me go in the lab. So they finally gave in and said, okay, fine. Um, And then they immediately put me in their fragrance factory. So I was on the factory shop floor, compounding 300 kilos of fragrance with metal buckets. (laughs) Right. So so that basically just means you you were following set formulas and actually putting the... Yeah, yeah. So I wasn't creating anything. So I I was put straight on the factory shop floor. So that was the first thing. So I kind of got to understand what does it look like if you're compounding in bulk, literal tons of fragrance, Mm. which have been shipped globally to the global retailers, um, cosmetic factories. What does it look like when you've put 4% of vanillin into a formula and then you have to make 300 kilos of the fragrance that has 4% vanillin and the vanillin is this iceberg in the middle of your your bucket and you're like oh shit how's that going to solubilize what am I going to do and you just have to stir it until it goes in um and so you sort of I don't know you just got a really um hands-on very very different perspective and then they put me into quality control um and then regulatory so I uh actually introduced regulatory software to this company and when then sort of looked around all the competitors and my first IFRA calculations I did on paper by hand and a single fine fragrance formula would take you all day um but I know how to do it by hand and I never want to do it by hand again ever (laughs) (laughs) and um and then they took me on buying trips and things like that so I got to go to the source where you know we had raw materials and anyway it was a really great sort of foundational education and and um I also had an external course, the uh, IFIAT um, uh, Diploma in Aromatory Study, and it was it was brilliant. But um, I then wanted to go and find sort of a very different kind of situation where um, perfumery was done in a kind of maybe more corporate way. Um, and I was just really curious about what else is out there. I was I was just super super driven to learn as much as I possibly could. Um, and I went a different way. So where Nick sort of stayed with, I guess, retailers. Yeah. And that's where our main point of difference, where we sort of went in slightly different directions on almost like a fork, where we'd started very, very similar. And then I went, you know what, I want to go and work somewhere that has nothing to do with retail. It's purely on the supply side. Nick stayed with the retailers. Um, and so I went in and um, got a job 
as the technical manager for a company that imports raw materials for both fragrances and cosmetics. And I did all their incoming and outgoing quality control for a few hundred raw materials, um, as well as then had a small perfumery role on the side. And two things happened in that role that I hadn't sort of fully appreciated until I did the job for a couple of years. Um, but I was really grateful afterwards. And it is that having to do the incoming and outgoing quality control, well, I didn't particularly enjoy it. I was sort of doing it so that I earned the right to do the perfumery. So uh, it was, okay. you know, it was sort of a job for me where I thought, well, fine, I'll do the bit that I'm not really necessarily interested in so that I get to be a perfumer. Um, because obviously there aren't that many employment opportunities around, especially given I started my career really late, relatively speaking, I started in my mid thirties. And so, you know, you, you sort of have to work for smaller companies and be a lot more resourceful about what you do. Um, but of course, in doing that quality control, what I accidentally ended up doing was the first year's perfumers training, <laughs> because uh -huh. of course you spend your first year doing nothing but smelling materials and memorizing them and understanding their qualities and their chemistry. And guess what I was doing for a job? <laughs> that. Already doing that. And yeah. yeah. <laughs> so that was kind of sort of, I realized after, so wait a minute, I've just done what they do in perfumery school. Yeah. <laughs> that yeah. was sort of a bit of a revelation. This is almost and, like uh, a, a karate kid. A method of it was for exactly i'm so glad <laughs> that you're in the right age bracket to get that reference because i was actually once i was trying to explain to somebody like wax on wax off and i just got this blank stare <laughs> and i thought oh my god it's happening now i can't i can't use my references anymore i i i've i've, I've gone past uh modern pop culture yeah how it seems to me <laughs> <laughs> but it was exactly that it was exactly that it was at the time thinking what the hell but it was in fact incredibly incredibly crucial mm. um and um and not only that of course i learned about a lot of the things that happen in the trade in in how materials are adulterated and you know we had sort of some quite spectacular attempts at uh fraud coming in with sandalwood oil uh, diluted ah. with vegetable oil and things like that so it was it was really educational on that level too um like from suppliers do you mean just yeah like suppliers very... yeah yeah yeah, yeah. suppliers would like put in extra a bit of because you know sandalwood oil has a bit of a fatty aroma anyway yeah yeah, yeah. um and it is not very much it's you know it's not a top note is it so you can actually put a bit of vegetable oil in there and get ah. away with it and of course, it's not detected by GCMS, is it really? Because it's, you know, vegetable oil isn't going to come off the peak. So it's not yeah. like adding extra, let's say, citronella to yeah. a, a rose absolute, which people do do as well. Um, and so if, you know, your rose absolute is suspiciously thin and runny, um, someone might have just added some extra citronella or PEA or something in there. But, you know, that would come off a GCMS or if I was doing a test I could see that peak is way too high yeah. for what it should be but vegetable oil doesn't show up there does it so but I, I detected it by nose because I'm very good at detecting rancid smells <laughs> um <laughs> sorry everybody in restaurants puts on salad dressing from the table they're all rancid <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> but um so I, I smelled it and thought, that's not right. There's a rancid note in here that 
would never happen to the fatty part of sandalwood. That just never would happen. Um, and so I looked up in the books, because I was new to this, I didn't know how to sort of detect it properly. So I found in one of the books on on sort of how to do the QC job, really, yeah. literally just looked up a chapter and it said, you can do a solubility test. Um, and yeah, because it will float above water. And so I found uh, basically the vegetable will float to the surface. Um, and so I called, wow. contacted the supplier and said, um, guys, um, as per my tests, turns out, what the hell? And they were like, oh, gosh, oh, we must have used a contaminated barrel. The vegetable oil oh. was still in. Uh, like, right, sure. Tell another one. Um, anyway. Um, so can then, I a, but, but so, can I just <laughs> interrupt because I want to stay on on this just very temporarily. Um, the, so is there is there a way to, uh, I guess, for perfumers or or brands to authenticate a supplier's you know credentials when it comes to things like this? Well, it's more complicated than that because the whole trade is an arms race between uh, very clever um, technical perfumers and chemists and quality control departments Uh, because everybody does it. Um, And so then it comes down to the ethics of the sales team and the relationship and the trust between the buying department and the sales team. And there's all these coded words that you use in the trade to say it's been adulterated or it's a complete reconstruction. And if you've got an honest and good uh, trader and a good relationship with the buyer at the other end, you're speaking in these certain ways. So you say commercial quality. Yeah, yeah. or, Or you say nature identical. And you're basically sending a code to say it's not, actually entirely real but yeah Yeah. so basically there's ways in which you can do it ethically because you can say okay well look you know here's your lavender oil that costs you let's say 95 euros a kilo but what if i want to use lavender oil in this application that just hasn't got that kind of budget Mm -hmm. and i want to use a substantial amount of lavender oil and actually, what if the application isn't fine fragrance? What if it's something where you'll still get the lovely aroma? Maybe I want to yep. put it in fabric condition and maybe I want yep. to put it in a candle that's going to be sold in supermarkets at a very low price. At that point, they, I might say, do you have any commercial qualities or do you have any qualities that are suitable for this application that I'm going to use it in? So this isn't actually going into fine fragrance. I'm going to put it in a supermarket candle that's going to retail at $5.99. Mm-hmm. Um, and then they'll say, oh, yeah. We've got this commercial quality and then you can buy, you know, 20 pounds a kilo or whatever. So basically they'll have taken some real lavender oil and then extended it with the chemistry that's naturally found in lavender oils. But they would have probably used the synthetic nature identical counterparts at that point at that price. And so you get a nice product, you know what you're doing, but you're getting it at a competitive price. Now, that's the ethical way of doing it. Yes. But the problem that amateur perfumers beginning self-taught perfumers face is that all this stuff is out there in the marketplace it's been sold resold repacked resold sometimes 10 times before it ends up in the in the sort of box under the bed of the wannabe perfumer who's taken a couple of online courses and really wants to learn and they Mm. might be smelling a material that's not even real or has been adulterated so much that it's not really the benchmark anymore 
And so yeah. their learning is already sabotaged and they wouldn't even know that this is a thing, much less how to control for it. And they wouldn't have the equipment or the tools of training to be able to do their quality control. And actually, I would say a huge number of the sellers who are selling materials in small quantities are tempted um, to, to sell adulterated materials or reconstructions or commercial qualities as real, because otherwise there isn't much margin for them. There isn't much money in it uh, to sell somebody 10 mil of something or 30 mil of something, um, because why wouldn't you be trying to sell somebody 60 kilos or 125 kilos? Um, the, the hassle it is to actually sell in small amounts means yeah. that's why there aren't that many suppliers. So there's really just a handful of suppliers I would ever even remotely trust at that sort of low amount. Um, and even then, they might be getting materials that they themselves have been uh, fraudulently sold. And unless they're very thorough about their incoming quality control, they might not even know that they're actually selling on something that's been adulterated. But anyway, sidetrack, 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 sidetrack. But, you know, this is sort of the stuff that I started to find out, you know, when mm. I was kind of working um, behind the scenes, if you like, on the dark side. And um, it started to dawn on me that you have, it's not just so much gatekeeping in trying to learn perfumery on your own, but it's not knowing what you don't know and not knowing how to ask the right questions and also not having certain things available to you because they're not commercially viable. So you are at a disadvantage and the more you can form good relationships, good partnerships with other organisations, maybe you can partner with a compounding house, maybe you can partner with a supplier, maybe you can form a collective and, and a group buy so that you can get uh, higher quality materials at higher amounts from direct from source, from the actual manufacturer, those sort of things are wise, I think, to to try and sort of get around it. And obviously going to places like Institute of Art and Olfaction to, yeah. to actually be able to smell the real materials and experiment, and then you sort of, you can benchmark and you can understand what you're working with and what you should be looking for. But yeah, so I went from there to work for a sort of a third company as a perfumer but actually my main role there was regulatory and I did some training as well and it was another one of those where you know I felt like my reward for doing the other roles within the company was to get to do some perfumery yeah and while in my first job I had mostly done perfumery for toiletries and cosmetics so bath products soaps shampoo face cream face cleanser um lots of things like that I did get to do one perfume perfume and I did get to modify existing fine fragrance accords um and I got to do things like they were buying in a base and I had it analyzed and then I remade it um at their end so you know I was sort of getting my hand in there but I wasn't really doing you know fine fragrance as a main role and then um in the second role where I was mostly doing quality control I did actually do a lot of really low price perfumery so it was a different kind of challenge I had to do um sort of really 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 tight budget perfumery for uh sort of discounter uh cosmetics uh home fragrance cleaning products even so that really exposed me to kind of a really different 
set of problems, but it was very educational. Um, and then in his third job, that's where I started to be able to do a little bit of fine fragrance, kind of more for real. Um, yeah. I wasn't there for very long because Nick became available. Okay. And I wasn't super happy um, in that role purely because I wasn't doing enough perfumery. I, it was really just a sort of a little thing on the side, you know, and I felt like, well, this can't be it. I've worked so hard and I've invested everything. I've moved around the country. I've uprooted myself. I've done everything I possibly could to to sort of chase this dream of becoming a proper perfumer with a capital mm-hmm. P. And you know, I really mm-hmm. wanted to do that and I had to such strong belief that I could do it providing I was given the chance to really get in there and, and do it all the time yeah and I just felt I hadn't had enough practice so I thought if I'm going to get to do only this much perfumery sort of on average as my working week what my working week looks like there then I'm never going to learn it it's I'm going to run out of time yeah. um, and I'll never really learn it and so then Nick um sort of Nick and I got together I was writing for Perfume and Flavorist at the time I was uh, writing some um, I sort of had a column there where I went around and interviewed perfumers about their route to career and you know uh, their stories and it was really interesting and I decided to do an article for Perfume and Flavorist about fragrance evaluators because I thought it was a really interesting role and mostly unheard of and and sort of hidden by people even many in the trade don't really sort of know what does an evaluator do really and so um nick was doing a kind of an interesting role at the time because part of it was evaluation although from the brand's perspective mm-hmm. so i invited him around and we had already met through base notes, um, which I hope you know, <laughs> yeah, it's yeah. A, a fragrance forum, and um, we'd met through. I suggested to Grant um, a couple of years prior to that that we should have a UK perfume meet because the US um, members were having them, and I was jealous. And I thought I want to meet with people who like perfume. Yeah, um, exactly. I want I want to hang out with people who understand my weird obsession. <laughs> So, you know, obviously, so I sort of suggested to Grant, why don't we organize one in the UK? And so we did one in London. And that's the first time Nick and I met face to face. Um, And then, you know, we sort of met kind of every now and then to sort of go around sniffing perfumes together. And, you know, there wasn't anything formal in it, but we were friends anyway. Yeah. And then, um, yeah, I sort of got him around. Uh, We sat around my kitchen table. I got him drunk. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> as, you as as you do and um <clears throat> we we did the interview for the magazine but then we actually started realizing that we both really frustrated where we were because Lardisan and Penhaligans um had just been sold to an investor and they were trying to stop Nick having a hybrid role they didn't understand him what he could offer they didn't understand the business either from a sort of a sense of how it was operating currently they wanted to impose their own sort of kind of formalities on it I guess they had their own systems and processes which they just wanted to kind of implant like this um and Nick was going to be put into HR and he was like I'm not HR what the hell (laughs) (laughs) no absolutely not and um 
And we're both sort of just joking around saying, oh, we should start a business one day. And then three months later, <laughs> business was it. registered. Yeah. So um, we we sort of, we kind of started putting feelers out there for what sort of work could we do and who could we get as a client and what would that business look like and what would be our sort of unique offering really. Um, and then weirdly, something sort of came up which we hadn't sort of sought out, which was a client who had a factory and the consumer goods manufacturer. And they basically needed everything. They needed our training. They needed fragrance range evaluation. They needed my perfumery. They needed everything, everything that we could possibly do. They wanted Nick to do copywriting for them. And um, <laughs> Nick just called me up and said, uh, you've got to come and meet these people. And by the way, I've registered our business. <laughs> <laughs> And we've got some work. <laughs> yeah, and we got some work. We had a immediate client. And then, um, yeah, that was seven years, nine months ago. Um, and so we're turning eight um, this summer. And it's been kind of wild because whilst we have obviously sort of sometimes had situations where maybe we've suggested something to an existing client or we've had a discussion with somebody at a meeting and said, hey, we could do that for you. We haven't also really ever had to go out of our way to sell because what happens is it's a sort of a chain effect. You mm. know, people who've worked with us or have bought a course from us or uh, we've done perfumery for them or even in one case, somebody who I'm in uh, council with uh, on the British Society of Perfumers, you know, she just brought her old client to me and said, I want to retire, you take them. <laughs> so um, so that sort of thing. So we haven't actually had to go out and, and sell. Uh, Natural is, organic growth. <laughs> yeah, which is really actually bonkers. And yeah. had we chased external investment, yeah, had yeah. we wanted to grow fast, had we wanted to get to a point where we were super big and lots of staff lots of perfumers then yeah we would have had to have done that but we, we deliberately didn't really want to set up a business in mm -hmm. order to grow the business is there so that we have a framework within which we can do the things we love so much yeah that's that's great i it, it's um it's a nice uh, kind of juxtaposition to the especially on social media and fragrance um brands wanting to grow quickly and um fragrance influences wanting to grow quickly i really like the fact that uh that it started off quite organically two friends talking about their mutual love of perfume and um and then all of a sudden things just rolled from from there so um yeah, yeah I, I always like hearing stories <laughs> like that but with all but with old fiction so if i'm going to put a link in the description for the podcast to the old fiction website and to bougie bougie which we'll talk about hopefully very very soon but it's essentially a fragrance consultancy um business um where uh you you have actually uh, apart from creating your own brand with nick of of candles and now perfumes you've obviously done work for other brands as well yeah. um as a as a 
as a perfumer, um, I, I guess uh, a lot of people who would listen to this, um, uh, one example, uh, it's this, this perfume is basically kind of the first time um, I became conscious of you as a perfumer, Pia, oh. um, and that was Chipmunk by Zoologist. Yes. <laughs> um, how, so I'm curious to know how the, the process of creating a perfume from a brief for another brand, the main pros and cons of doing that as opposed to creating something from for your brand. Ooh. Um, if yeah, there is so, any, yeah. Well, they're both lovely in their own ways and they own, have their sort of pros and cons, definitely. Um, so the ideal situation would be that I would just get to do perfumery and nothing else. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, that, that's uh, still a dream that I have that, you know, we could be just big enough as a company that I would just be able to do perfumery and and talk about perfumery and and maybe train other perfumers and and that's it you know just focus on that entirely yeah. but obviously when you're starting with two people and you've got to come up with a viable business that's going to sustain itself you have to also be quite realistic about what's going to bring in the money what's going to bring in the volume what's going to actually pay your overheads um and we to this date don't pay ourselves much salary we're still waiting for that magical day when we'll feel comfortable enough to raise our own salaries but we've been plowing all the money back into the business and now to our own brand because we just have this much longer term thought process and because of that we deliberately held off launching our own brand straight away because launching a brand takes over it really does you need not just money but you need eyes on it you need resources you need mm -hmm. other partners to help you there's so much that people don't realize you need the logistics you need the photography you need the social media you need somebody to design and produce your packaging you might be buying your caps from one supplier your bottles from another your boxes from a third your pumps from a fourth you know you have no idea when you get sort of somebody coming up with oh i'd like to start a brand is that do you know what you're asking because actually it is a really quite an enormous task and what people see on social media or in stores is really just the tip of the iceberg yeah well because we'd come from situations where we'd actually seen what it looks like to start a brand or run a company or run a manufacturing facility we were really really keen not to do that to ourselves straight away and so our number one priority was to find a business model that would support us um without us having to have that own brand straight away and then the own brand would become something that we do later when we felt that we were able to take it on uh, and then maybe hire some help uh, to run it. And so that's what we've done. And so in the beginning, we were just really keen to get some perfumery clients. And actually, we preferred in the beginning to have perfumery clients whose work we were sort of almost ghost perfumers. Yeah. Um, and so for that very first client, for instance, we ended up creating or wait I say we but I end up creating literally well over I would say 200 formulas just for them oh, wow. and I I um modified and reformulated I would say at least 100 more um and that's because they were contract manufacturing for 2,000 brands and what? they had their 
yeah and they had their own brand as well so that was actually the way for us to bring in money um and then the sort of more kind of outlier projects were these sort of chick monks and ball thoughts and those sort of things because they were sort of my kind of I get to do this. This is fun. Yeah. It's making us absolutely no money whatsoever, but it's fun yeah. um, because ultimately it's the retail margin, which makes the money in perfumery at this niche level. Yeah. So unless you're Byredo or Frederick Mal, you know, social times, if you're, you know, unless you're sort of a bigger, still considered niche, but a bigger company with a bigger distribution model, shifting thousands of units, um, then you're not really going to see a lot of money from a single perfume. And even at a level now that Victor operates, which is magnificent, it's still only just one perfume in his line. So it's not really sort of something that you could ever build a business around. Yeah. And so the fragrance industry on the whole actually makes most of its profit from non-fine fragrance applications. It's done on volume. So it's, for creating fragrances for laundry care, it's creating fragrances uh -huh. for soaps, it's creating fragrances for shampoos. 70% or more probably um, of the money in the fragrance trade comes from non-fine fragrance applications. And most perfumers in the world work on non-fine fragrance applications. So we knew this going in. So we knew that we would either have to find somewhere that gives us the volume or we would have to have a uh, really big brand take us on straight away, sight unseen, and that was unlikely. So we went the volume way initially, and it's now that we're able to sort of start working more with uh, brands for visibility for ourselves too, where actually they have a chance of having um, a bigger success and therefore bring us a bit more money on the fragrance oil sales. But that's still never going to be alone enough to support. So we have a huge part of our business that's invisible, really, which yeah. is us providing consultancy and training for companies. Um, and so we're building courses um, for clients where we do their internal training or their internal marketing help sometimes. Um, sometimes we uh, help uh product manufacturers to introduce new fragrances or discontinue existing ones. Um, we do a lot of work behind the scenes. That's actually the main income for our business. It's obviously brought you to this point um, where in, in the last uh, few months you've been able to launch um, yeah. your brand with Nick. I yeah. mean, Bougie were, was already doing the candles, right? That, that yeah. had been going on for quite some time. Um, what was... Uh, was there a, a, a purposeful um, plan to start with the candles and, and you were always eventually going to do the perfumes? Well, it was funny because we <laughs> the name came first and everything yeah. sort of came after that. And actually our original plan was to have a candle brand and then a separate brand for perfumes. Yeah. Um, and it was just us sort of wanting to have a playground at last, you know, sort of feeling, okay, we're at a point now where let's just have irreverent fun and let's show off a bit as well. Let's go yeah. look, look what we can do. Um, let's have some of this work visible to the world and let's also just not give ourselves any creative limits. Let's, let's just push things right out there and not try to be nice and not try to be, 
just commercial. Let's obviously we don't want to have things out there that are completely unwearable, but at the same time, we didn't want to sort of kind of go for the easiest low hanging fruit and go, oh, let's do a rose oud. You know, we wanted to really sort of um, kind of just let the creativity and the sense of joy in it to really lead the whole thing. And so it did come through candles first, purely because Nick came to work one day because we had been talking about wouldn't it be nice to start a brand and we weren't quite sure. We weren't happy to start a brand for the sake of it. It had to be something that we just felt like, okay, we've got to do this. And he came to work one day and he said, I had a dream that we started a brand called Bougie Bougies. <laughs> <laughs> and obviously it's, you know, for those who don't know, it's a, it's a play with words. And I mean, our, our company is called All Fiction. So we clearly love puns. Um, it's a bit tragic for us, but never mind. And so, um, it, you know, Bougie is, is French for candle. And then uh, Bougie spelled the other way is, of course, uh, sort of a, a modern way of saying bourgeois fancy. Yeah. yeah fancy uh ex- extra um <laughs> and so <laughs> it, it sort of thought hey hey candle candles that are extra um amazing candles for people who are a bit extra it just started to roll out we started to think hey this is brilliant um and so then came the stories then came the ideas we started to really uh kind of play with the concepts and and then we started to develop a sort of an internal logic okay well what makes something bougie you know what why is it not just any other luxury scented candle why does it you know what makes it uh specifically ours and we realized they had to all have these really strong stories in their own right but then somehow still feel like they're part of the same universe. And clearly because of the playfulness in the name of the brand itself, we wanted to carry that through to the story. So we wanted them to have a sort of a cheeky smile or, or you know, a sense of just enjoying um, the process, the whole process. And I hope, I really hope that came through even at that stage. But then we got a, obviously a bit of a sabotage straight away because as soon as we were ready to, start actually manufacturing the product and launching the pandemic hit yes yeah um and then we had to furlough people we had to um kind of we were really sort of short of funds all of a sudden because we lost uh our major one of our major clients whose uh retail stores uh nick had been traveling around the world in to do training and you know it was really kind of a real sort of gut punch like Ha, you thought you were going to start a brand. Guess what? There's one more lesson for you. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> Guess what? Yeah. And so then we thought, well, okay, you know what? It's We're sort of too far down this road now to back out. And so we did it anyway, but it wasn't quite as easy as we had hoped because we didn't, we weren't able to go to retail stores straight away. That was the plan. I mean, who buys the fragrance without smelling it? So trying to sell fragrant candles online um it was a challenge so we decided to launch the mini candles initially so that mm-hmm. people could buy a small one to try so they didn't have to commit to the big one straight away so that did help us in the beginning but then we were also let down by a packaging manufacturer we were actually sold the wrong kind of paper for the original boxes and by the time we realized what had happened um we'd already bought all the stock and we didn't have money to buy them all over again so the first 
round of the candles, the colour started wearing off the, the paper. And so retailers weren't that keen to take them on because obviously that, you know, they got scuffed really easily. And so we got taught another lesson there is, you know, it's, it's what you may be sent as a sample might not be the goods that you receive. And you have to be really kind of quite sort of ruthless about sending stuff back yeah. and demanding they do it again if they've basically sold you a, a, a sort of a, a rotten one. Right. But um, we didn't really have the opportunity we were in the middle of the pandemic it was mm-hmm. just all a bit shit so basically we did the best we could with the first run um and then the scents were received incredibly well so people absolutely adored the fragrances and we thought well okay we got the main part right the main part is that we wanted to really just go all the way out with the candles and we were spending more on the candle oils um the fragrance oils than pretty much anyone we knew so uh we knew that it was a way to sort of kind of just make the candle experience as luxurious as a really beautiful niche perfume that was always what we wanted to do so we had confidence in the brand and then obviously coming out of the pandemic um and other parts of business picking up and doing really well we were able to sort of invest quite a substantial amount of money into sort of repackaging, relaunching everything. And then we also designed two new candles and then four perfumes. And so it's all now in its new lovely packaging. We've got four perfumes out and there's, I want to say two perfumes in development, but in actual fact, we've got more sort of in the background, but the two that I'm physically actually working on, there's, two more perfumes to be added over the next sort of I don't want to give a date but within the next couple of years <laughs> wonderful that's great news I mean I, I can definitely personally attest to the fact that that um I I don't know I I feel like everything you've just described about what you wanted the perfumes to be has has manifested in in the sense themselves they're they're all they all have an identity but the four that you've released are, are mm. all completely different to each other yeah, also. they really um, are. But, but they feel like they've come from the same creative minds, basically. Um, so that's that's obviously my personal opinion. And yeah. I'm going to obviously link to uh, Bougie Bougie website and Old Fiction in the description because I, I want people to go and have a look at what you do. Um, I, I'm very conscious of the time we have together, Pierre, but I, I definitely wanted to touch on one thing. Um, there's, a, there's a section on Old Fiction where you there's some blog posts that you've put up. Um, I remember some time ago you penned uh, an open letter about uh, the EU chemical strategy and what risks that posed to perfumery. Unfortunately, at that particular point, uh, internet decided to become fragile and unstable and I lost connection with Pia. I was going to ask her about the the open letter blog that she's posted in Old Fiction about the EU chemical strategy. I'm going to leave a link to Old Fiction and then a separate link directly to that open letter and I, I urge everyone to read it uh, because it appears to be 
uh, putting perfumery at risk, I guess. Um, I was hoping to get an update on that, uh, but please follow Pia on Instagram and Bougie Bougie on Instagram uh, to hear more uh, from any of this. Uh, thank you for listening and we'll see you soon with another podcast. Mm-hmm.